0: today. Thank you for singing it into being. As you can see, many of our West members are part of the the chorus this morning coming from the Brendan Taft Workshop, and it is a special joy to have among them a couple of folks who were raised here at the Ethical Society. It is good to have you back with us. Well, I will start this platform by saying what it isn't. I always like to get those expectations right out of the way. Here's what I'm not going to do. And if you wanted that and you feel like, you know, just leaving and going outside today, that'll that'll be okay. It's not a platform about sort of labor in its deepest sense. It's not a platform about capitalism on a philosophic level or a platform about how much better the world would be with a guaranteed minimum income. That would be an awesome platform. But it's not, as it happens, this one. This is a platform about how the adage to follow your bliss... Sometimes leads you to feel anything but blissful. Follow your bliss. You've seen it stitched on pillows. Perhaps you have it stitched on a pillow on your couch right now or on bumper stickers with Ben and Jerry's logos, too, you know. Find your calling, do what you love. One of my favorite quotes, which I know I've used here before, is from the minister Frederick Beekner, who talks about vocation. He says that vocation is the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. I love that idea, the idea of a calling in the world where what we most love to do is precisely what the world needs us to do. And then, of course, the biggest, I'm sure, it's a bumper sticker as well. If you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. You know that one, right? If you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. We hold it out, I think, as a real ideal, as though that is possible. Every day will be sort of running through fields of daisies. You're, I guess, a gardener or like a professional (laughs) daisy field runner. And you're wearing your white linen garments which flow behind you, you know? And you just never, a day in your life, everything is bliss and daisies. It's a challenging image for many of us and for several reasons. Now, I love my job. I have a true calling in life, right? I've wanted to do precisely this since I was a young teenager. I can't imagine doing nothing else. It is indeed a vocation, the way Frederick Buechner might say it. And I got back on Friday afternoon from a nine-day vacation, and vacation is different than this. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> I am glad to be back. I was looking forward to returning. We have an exciting month ahead with a lot happening as we prepare for our move to two platforms in April, as, as we get ready for community dinner, all of the things that I love and enjoy, and I was glad to come back. And I was also aware as we neared the end of that second flight and the number of hours between me and my email began to decrease, (laughs) I was aware of that sinking feeling, you know, the one that you hold like right there in your gut. What will I find, I wonder, when I log in? What I found was actually better than I expected. I had 442 unread emails, and I really thought I would break 500. So thank you all for not emailing me that much. Now, some of that some of that may be because email specifically is not my calling, right? That's not precisely what I dreamed of at 13 when I, when I first thought to myself, I think I'd like to do something with a religious congregation, a community. What would that be like? But some of it is that work is work. You know, you are required to participate in it, including the parts that aren't super fun. That's why they pay you for it, in fact. I can't just say, I'm sorry. I have a vocation and a calling. I love my job really deeply. And at this moment, I'm more into the daisies than that board meeting. I apologize. I won't be able to join you for that. I don't think I can say that anyway. If any board members feel like I can say that, just let me know. (laughs) I'll be at the daisies. And I am, I know, one of the very lucky ones. Lots of us have jobs that we like. We like them fine, perhaps. They're like frozen peas. (laughs) Frozen peas are fine. You can put butter on them if you want to. They feed you. Actually, that is sort of the key with jobs for most of us. For the majority of Americans, they feed you. They feed your family. That is one of the big ways, I think, that the follow your bliss idea, which looks so nice on a throw pillow doesn't really work as an ideal to hold on to. Bound up in that idea is a kind of elitism, a classism that simply doesn't work for the vast majority of Americans. In fact, many Americans have one or more jobs that they actively don't like, that they have no expectation of liking, that bliss doesn't enter into at all. It's simply not relevant, because what they need are frozen peas right, to feed their families. The ideal is a privileged concept at best. Mia Tokumitsu, who wrote an essay in Slate called In the Name of Love, which then was developed actually into a book, wrote about the problem with what she calls do what you love, D-W-Y-L, that mantra, She writes, there's little doubt that do what you love is now the unofficial work mantra for our time. The problem is that it leads not to salvation, but to the devaluation of actual work, including the very work it pretends to elevate, and more importantly, the dehumanization of the vast majority of laborers. By keeping us focused, she goes on, on ourselves and our individual happiness, DWYL distracts us from the working conditions of others while validating our own choices and relieving us from obligations to all who labor, whether or not they love it. She talks about Steve Jobs, who is sort of the known as the ultimate do-what-you-love speaker and who was, by all accounts, an inspiring genius, created a company doing, indeed, what he loved and lived his life in that way. But she shows us a different side. She writes By portraying Apple as a labor of his individual love, Jobs elided the labor of untold thousands in Apple's factories, conveniently hidden from sight on the other side of the planet. The very labor that allowed Jobs to actualize his love. even for those of us who are privileged, who have the option, potentially, of following our bliss, or at least of buying the throw pillow and thinking it has a place on our couch. For being able to imagine it could be a possibility, still I think the ideal can hold challenge for us. There's been a lot of conversation about this platform in the last really few weeks and months, and in fact, it's a platform that I created out of a specific request from someone. Could you talk about this topic here? And so there's been a whole lot of kind of Facebook chatter, people talking about what work means to them, what it means to them to be told to follow their bliss. One West member wrote about how what she loves most to do in the world is to create joy. And that she thinks she does it pretty well. She's told she does it well in her hospitality or how she cares for others. But that when she thinks about being paid to do that kind of work, it loses all the joy of it, all the fun. Someone else wrote about ruining their love of cooking by starting a catering business (laughs) for a few misspent years. And then I think there is the deeper, more insidious insidious problem of believing that we must be in the wrong job if it's not a job that sets our souls aflame with burning passion. If we don't wake up every morning hoping and wishing that we could just get to work so that our passion can unfold, that we must have chosen wrong somehow. Person after person wrote about their, their sense of demoralization by the charge to find the perfect job, the one that made them blissful. When what they found was a job that gave them frozen peas, good sometimes with butter. But not exactly passion. I think that this desire for passion, for the perfect soul aflame job, goes deeper even than our work. Lisa Heffernan, who is a blogger for the New York Times writing about parenting issues, wrote a piece called The Push for Passion and Why It Harms Kids. She's talking about the sort of um, almost competitive nature of trying to help your child find their passion. She starts the blog post by talking about being at her son's soccer game, and she's standing there with a younger sibling of someone on the team. You know, you imagine maybe a six- or seven-year-old, and I guess she said, you know, do you you play soccer too or something? And, And he said, well, I haven't really found my passion yet, not like my older brother, But my parents are helping me to try to find it, so I hope that I'll get there soon." She describes waiting for the note of irony in his voice, but (laughs) it didn't come. She writes, "'We have come to believe that only those who have passion find fulfillment and success professionally. It's as if passion is life's magic pixie dust. We want success for our children and believe that only passion can lead them there. We hold on to this myth despite considerable evidence that millions of people have lived long, happy, useful lives filled with joy and contentment and devoid of a defining passion. For most children, she goes on, childhood isn't about passion but rather about exploration. Our job as parents is to nurture that exploration and not put an end to it. When we create an expectation that children must find their one true interest so early in life, we cut short a process of discovery that may easily take a lifetime. She points out, too, the expense of finding all that passion and takes us into her cluttered garage where there are the ice skates from the passion for ice skating that lasted three weeks and the drum set for the passion for drumming that lasted five weeks. We perhaps have some of those. You all know how long my passion for journal writing lasts. I've shared with you (laughs) how many journals I have that have two entries in them and then an entirely blank book. Passion sometimes is fleeting. I think that Heffernan makes a good point for how the the idea of a singular passion, a one animating force in our life, and of course the one that we therefore are paid for, right? This one animating passion can be harmful to an individual. But I, I think that that Tokumitsu makes the stronger case for the deeper harm done to society as a whole, to the force of labor and how labor can expect to be treated. She writes, instead of crafting a nation of self-fulfilled, happy workers, our do-what-you-love era has seen the rise of the adjunct professor and the unpaid intern, people persuaded to work for cheap or free or even for a net loss of wealth. Excluded from these opportunities, of course, is the overwhelming majority of the population, those who need to work for wages. How prosaic. This exclusion not only calcifies economic and professional immobility, but insulates these industries from the full diversity of voices society has to offer. In an interview with, um, with her following the publishing of this article and then the book that she eventually wrote... She talks about why this might be. The most cynical explanation, she says, is that employers demand passion because they don't want to hear complaints. If you make passion a job requirement, you can't complain about your workload. I have seen this happen many, many years ago, not here. I was part of a hiring process, and we had a great candidate, or a few of us in the room, we had a great candidate, and um, she gave a really good interview and and answered all the questions well, and then, you know, you have that part where you invite the candidate to ask their questions, and then they show you that they've read your website by asking about some esoteric thing three pages down and how that project's going, and you are all impressed. And, and, um, and she, she did that, you know, and then, um, and then she asked about health insurance, what the health insurance was like and, uh, what it covered and what was available to employees. And, um, and afterward, after she left, uh, someone else on the hiring committee said, well, you know, she asked about health insurance, so I'm not sure she's for us. You have to really love this work. You have to really love this work. I thought, gosh, I do love this work, this work I was doing then, but I also would like health insurance (laughs) as it happens. It's the juxtaposition of loving work and seeing it as essentially still work that is the challenge here, I think, the thing that damages us most in society. I think about the staff at West, which is dedicated and invested in the mission of the congregation and still has a right to ask for fair salaries in line with compensation in other congregations and for benefits. We, as the congregation, as an employer, cannot ask them to live on their love of mission alone. It's hard to eat love of mission. Frozen peas work better for that. I think, I think the importance here is to understand labor as labor, work as work, and to compensate people for that, later, that labor. Inviting, of course, emotional fulfillment, if that also comes, but never forgetting that work requires fair compensation regardless of one's emotional attachment to it. In one of those articles I read for this platform, there was a, a quote A quote from a a different author talking about how the corporate world actually was trying to emulate academia, because in academia, people will work and work for very little money, particularly with the rise of adjunct professors who, as you may know, are usually paid extremely low salaries, and they won't even call it work, They won't even think of themselves as working. This person asked, how can we in corporate America engender the same kind of inspired passion in our employees so that they will work 60 and 80 hour weeks and not even know they are working? (laughs) So what do we do about it? Is it only frozen peas for all of us? Is it a life without passion that can't be right somehow. The point, I think, of all of this isn't to denigrate work that is meaningful. It's not to debase work in academia, work that is fulfilling, whatever it might be, but rather to acknowledge the workness, the essential workness of all work, to value and honor all labor, whether we happen to love it or not no matter how much butter is dripping on those frozen peas. Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, who was himself very involved in the labor movement, particularly in creating child labor laws and other labor laws in America, he had a unique take on the value of labor and how to approach it. And he actually did term it in, in, in the language of vocation a language that we associate with calling and that we frequently associate with a, a very narrow set of things that might fit within vocation. But he imagined vocation really broadly. All of us, he would say, have a vocation. Here's what he wrote in An Ethical Philosophy of Life, one of his earlier books, so the late 19th century. Every vocation satisfies someone or more of the empirical human needs. But in the very act of process or process of doing so, it ought, in order to deserve the name of a vocation, to satisfy also a spiritual need, to contribute in a specific way toward the formation of a spiritual personality." Adler goes on to talk about how each vocation, every profession, every job, and the industry that it's part of, from the artist to the factory worker and everyone in between, might be set up so as to enhance the ethical well-being of the individual and the ethical end of our shared moral life. Adler, in fact, wanted to seat people in the ethical society by vocation. Can you imagine if I got you all up and had you all move around? Our, our folks who are professional volunteers, those who stay at home with children. He actually had a whole section on, on mothers specifically, but we'll just go with parents. How about that? Here we are, 21st century. Um, and, uh, and And have people seated by vocation so that they might be able to support each other in their different work, in their different professions, so that they might inhabit that work in the most ethical way possible, and so that the ethical teachers of the society could learn from people within those vocations what was needed to support their work and the ultimate ethical ends of the society at large. If one of the challenges of do what you love is that it's individualistic, that it's the throw pillow for just your sofa and forgets about all of the people, frankly, the people that sewed that throw pillow, right, (laughs) in a factory, if one of the challenges is that it's individualistic, then a remedy is to look to society as a whole, to experience all kinds of labor as part of the greater good. There's a story I heard many years ago that I heard again recently And you might know it. It's a story of a person who's walking along uh, a a riverbank, perhaps, somewhere in Europe, and sees three people out working. And they're each doing the same thing. And so the person goes up to the first worker and says, well, what are you doing? And the worker says, what do you think I'm doing? I'm chiseling at this piece of stone over and over again for eight hours a day. Okay, that was true. And then the person goes on to the second worker, and the second worker says, well, you know, I'm, I'm creating kind of a statue here with my chisel and this piece of stone over the course of the day. And that was true, too. And then the person goes to the third worker who stands there with the chisel and who says, looking up, I'm building a cathedral. I'm building a cathedral. Now, there are things about that story that I like and things that I don't. It's a little trite, perhaps. And after all, all three of the workers are right in their descriptions of their jobs. And sometimes, golly, it does feel as though we are chipping little by little at a piece of stone for eight hours a day. But the broader point of the story, I think, is a good one for us. In a well-functioning society, all labor is valued because all labor is understood to be adding to the functioning of that society, to be part of the greater story. This makes space too for joy creation, <laughs> for all that we do which is outside of our paid labor, for the parents and the mentors, the joy builders, the cooks, the bakers, the volunteers, the many ways that each of us adds to our own lives and to society, all of us building a part of that cathedral. That, I think, is the final remedy, or at least a piece of it, the answer to follow your bliss, that the bliss cannot possibly be so narrow that it exists only if it purchases us enough frozen peas. One piece of our lives is not all of us, just like one part of our desire is not all of us. It's good to remember that in February, around Valentine's Day, we get into that same trap with romantic relationships, you know, thinking they are the end-all, be-all of bliss. But just in the way that they are not, so too our professional lives are not, our work lives are not, no, we are much fuller, bigger people than that. So follow your bliss, I guess, but know that your bliss is big, much bigger than we sometimes pretend it is. If you can get paid for doing what is frequently blissful to you, well, go for it. But don't forget while you're doing it that it's still work, still something you're paid for, still frozen peas. They just taste really good. If you can't get paid for your bliss, or if getting paid for it takes the bliss right out from it, then follow that bliss in other ways. In fact, I might say always follow it in other ways. Always make sure that you give the bliss enough room to reach out and grow as possible. One of the things that clergy often remind each other about, clergy have both the statistically one of the sort of highest satisfaction ratings in their job and also um, a really high incidence of burnout and ill physical health. So there's something happening there, right? And, um, and one of the things that clergy often remind each other is how important it is to have a hobby that has nothing to do with your work. You know, I do love my work, and I I really could answer your emails all night. And sometimes I do. You'll get emails from me at 11 o'clock at night sometimes, and you'll think to yourself, there she is, following her bliss. (laughs) That's so wonderful. But woe unto me, (laughs) woe unto all of us, if we forget that there is bliss to be found outside that life if we forget to create the other places for our passions to unfold, our desires to be met and fulfilled. There is something to be said, I think, for the separation of the two, bliss and work, for at least holding and understanding them as potentially different in your life. I was reading on that vacation I had, which wasn't precisely like work. I was reading um, *The Claverings*, one of the shorter novels by Anthony Trollope, which means I think it's like four thousand pages long. And um, and uh, someone was was sort of sitting around after dinner, relaxing with friends, and and the character mused, "Why can't it all be after dinner?" Why can't it all be after dinner? It sounds good, doesn't it? But then goes on. We are driven to work because work never palls on us, whereas pleasure always does. What a wonderful scheme it is when one looks at it all. No man can follow pleasure long continually. When a man strives to do so, he turns his pleasure at once into business and works at that. So, sure... Follow your bliss. If you have the throw pillow, keep it on your sofa, by all means. But make your bliss big enough. Write your passion large. Look for the ways to build a society where bliss is accessible to all, which doesn't mean that everyone's working at it, but that everyone can find it somewhere and that they have enough frozen peas to eat as well. Make of your pleasure the most you possibly can. Do your work as well as you can with an eye toward the ethical ideal in your own life and in society. That's what Adler would tell us. And don't, I think, be ashamed of the frozen peas If they come with butter, so much the better. But eating frozen peas is good, too. Here, then, is to a society with frozen peas for all...